0: The world entirely is at war. Troops waiting for the zero hour. This is D-Day. They got one.
1: Veterans Chronicles. For the next hour, join host Gene Pell and an honored roster of heroic soldiers, sailors, and fighting aviators, recalling and retelling their personal stories from World War
0: II to the present day. Allied air forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait.
1: Now, the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network present Veterans Chronicles with your host, Gene Pell. Under
2: the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces began landing Allied armies This morning, on the northern coast of France. Today, the armies of the United Nations have made their first landings on the soil of Western
3: Europe. Now, H.R., all hell broke loose. The battle wagons opened up their fire. The cruisers, the destroyers, the landing craft that carried the rockets. It was like hell, really. Well, we headed in, and we hit the beach. It was a baptism of fire for us.
2: Hello, I'm Gene Pell. Joseph Voggy's baptism of fire began at 6:30 in the morning on June 6, 1944, on the coast of France at a place called Omaha Beach. The young Navy officer was a beachmaster, responsible for getting men and matériel onto the shore and moving inland under constant bombardment from German gun emplacements. General Eisenhower sent over the water a fearsome armada of 5,000 vessels and 11,000 planes. On the other side of the English Channel was General Rommel's Atlantic Wall, a network of defenses along the French coast that included six million mines, concrete bunkers and pillboxes, tank ditches, and other elaborate beach obstacles, along with 55 German divisions. Operation Overlord was about to deliver the greatest blow of the war. It was a moment for which Joseph Vagie had trained and for which his young life had prepared him.
3: I was born and reared in a little town in Connecticut called Bethel, Connecticut, population 3,200 people. And it was my pleasure to have been uh, born into a family of nine children. Six of us were in the service at the same time. Uh, The last, the sixth one, came into the service just at the end of World War II. But all the rest of us, all five of us, were in during the actual fighting of the war. My parents were immigrants from Italy. They came from Milano. My father came in 1906 and my mother 10 years later. uh, I was lucky enough to have been under the tutelage of my mother and father who are quite religious folks, so we got a pretty good background on uh, what was right and what was wrong. Uh, Fortunately, I was a pretty rugged lad and when I went to my high school in Bethel after the second year, the coach from the Danbury High School, which was the next town, uh, offered me a scholarship to go to Danbury to play football because I was pretty good at football, baseball, and basketball. And I accepted. And uh, from Danbury High School, I earned a scholarship to go to Providence College in Rhode Island, a football scholarship. Well, the reason that is so important is that very few kids in my town were college students or were actually going to college. So it was quite an excitement in the town when uh, Josie was leaving town to go to Providence.
2: We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced.
3: When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, we were listening to the football game in New York, as a matter of fact, when that occurred. Well, immediately, uh, the draft went into effect, and the... uh, Person in charge of the draft board in Bethel uh, got in touch with me and said, "You know, if you want to finish up, you only have six more months of school at Providence. You may want to go to Boston and, and enroll in the Navy. And if you're lucky enough, well, they'll let you stay on." So that's precisely what I did. I enrolled in the Navy in Boston and was graduated in December of '42. At which time I went to Notre Dame. Uh, In University in Indiana. I was one of those 90-day wonders because in 90 days we supposedly uh, became uh, officers and gentlemen of the Navy. And fortunately, uh, after the first two weeks, three weeks, I was called before the commanding officer and asked to tell him all about myself well, it f- was very frightening because had I not qualified, I would have had to go to Chicago and become a seaman second class. And all the poor folks back in Bethel and said, well, what happened to Josie? He didn't make it. And that was very devastating, you see. Well, it turned out that the bottom line was that after my interview with the commanding officer and some of his uh, colleagues, I was called back the following week and told that I was selected to be the commanding officer of the building I was in. So I, uh, they gave me four stripes right off the bat, little teeny stripes.
2: In the spring of 1943, as Joseph Vaghi was completing his officer training course, Allied forces were mopping up the last German resistance in North Africa. They were also about to invade Sicily and possibly the Italian mainland. But planning was also underway for a much bigger mission, the opening of a second front. The operation called for a direct assault against Hitler's armies through a massive invasion of France. Waghi applied for destroyer duty, but 95% of his class ended up in amphibious forces. That meant something was in the wind. Plans were being laid that required specialized
3: training. I was assigned to uh, the Philadelphia Navy Yard and then transferred to a Beach Battalion group down in Norfolk, Virginia where we trained as a group and we formed what was called a beach battalion. Now in preparation, uh, once, the, once the organization of uh, beach battalion uh, was firmed up, uh, we trained extensively along the Virginia coast, uh, making landings uh, at various locations. And after having trained there for four or five months, we went down to Fort Pierce, Florida, where we met with our Army counterparts. The training there was uh, living your Army life. We dressed like Army people. We uh, ate a little better food than the Army did, but uh, uh, we were, for all intents and purposes, part of the Army organization. Uh, we made any number of landing. We would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and march about three miles, uh, get into landing crafts, go out in the ocean and circle around for an hour and then come in and land. Then we had uh, activities that incorporated not only our own uh, company, but in company with other Army people doing the very same thing with us. We learned how to use uh, our rifles. We learned how to use pistols, Tommy guns, carbines, all of the activities that a landing party would have to become proficient in Why we train.
2: In January 1944, Foggy and his unit shipped out for England. Two years of invasion planning massed over two million Allied troops in the British Isles and supplied them with 16 million tons of material. Training was intense and demanding at a place on the British West Coast called Slapton Sands, where conditions closely resembled the beaches of Normandy.
3: But we did not know at that time where we were going to be going. But uh, we trained any number of times. We Full flotilla of, of personnel, landing crafts, aircrafts, carriers, tanks, you name it all, they came uh, and landed shore just the way we would do it when we would be going ashore in Normandy. One of the sad episodes that occurred during that training period was on one of the uh, landings called Tiger. A a German uh, E-boat, which was stationed in uh, Cherbourg, came across the channel and intercepted three of our LSTs and sank two of them. And the third one got away, but it was damaged, and we lost over 725 men. This was just in training, 725 men. And I did not know about this until 20 years later. It was kept a secret, and the families were notified that their sons were killed in an accident during the line of duty. And, but no reference was given as to where, how, or when. And it was a terrible thing, and there's, thank God none of us knew anything about it because i think it would have been very frustrating even for the rest of us so after several of these maneuvers uh, on the slapton sands we went to a place called weymouth near dorchester and we went into what is called a marshalling area and troops from all over england went into different marshalling areas along the coast and the reason was that we had to be near a port now, a marshalling area, you were totally, it was like being in prison. You, once you were brought into that area, you could not get out of it. And only ones that had the highest uh, level of secrecy uh, were able to get in and get out. Now, during that period of time, we as beachmasters and those who needed to know would go to tents where we would look at and discuss the, the operation that was coming up, which was the landing in Normandy. I knew at this time where we were going. Didn't know when, but I knew where. Well, at those uh, conferences, at those meetings, we were given the chart, the maps of where we were going to land, given all the details, where the gun emplacements were of the Germans, uh, where the obstacles were on the beaches themselves, all the characteristics of the channel, the rise and fall of the tides, when the tides would be high, when the tides would be low, what direction the tides were going in and at what time, uh, what the speed of the tide was. Everything there was to know about the beaches, we were given that information and they had a model and we had pictures of that showing the profile, the elevation of the beach area. Of course, one of the things that made me feel comfortable about all of it was that during our period of introduction and study in the marshaling area, one of the things that was on the beach that we could identify as we were going in was a house near a certain location and I had that burned in my mind because that was I was looking for and when the day came and we were going in I said there's a house we were in the right place so I felt very comfortable
1: Veterans Chronicles, produced in Washington, D.C. by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. To learn more about this program or the American Veterans Center, call 202-777-7272 or log on to AmericanVeteransCenter.org. to Veterans Chronicles presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio American Network.
2: On the 3rd of June, the invasion forces left the marshalling area under the highest secrecy and boarded ships of every description.
3: Here we landed aboard ship. We were supposed to pull out uh, on the 4th for the landing on the 5th of June, but the weather conditions were such that Eisenhower was informed that it would be folly. It would be a disaster if we were to go then so Eisenhower postponed a day and the following day Eisenhower said we are going it's all go and it was then that Eisenhower got on the radio and broadcast his speech to all the hands are on our way
2: June 6 1944 D-Day while American and British airborne units began securing positions behind Normandy's beaches the greatest invasion force ever assembled was moving across the storm-tossed waters of the English Channel. Most of the assault troops traveled in big transports, LCILs, Landing Craft Infantry Large. But they would be taken ashore in smaller vessels, launched ten miles from the French coast.
3: As we were going across the uh, Channel... We played uh, some poker. I was never much of a poker player, but at least I had the sense of knowing when I could. Lo- I was going to lose. And that was when I saw I had five aces in my hand. And I said, well, that's time for me to get out of here. So <laughs> I, re- I went to my quarters, as meager as they were with so many of us aboard, and uh, I just lay in the sack, and I think I may have gotten a little bit of sleep. But by 3 o'clock in the morning, we were up, Bells rang, and the sound came over the PA system. We were getting ready now, getting our gear together for the word to go ashore.
2: The weather was hardly optimal on the 6th of June, but good enough to launch the already delayed landing. The rough waters of the channel caused plenty of problems for ships' captains and debilitating seasickness for thousands of troops. Then there were the obstacles and mines that laced the water, and as land was within reach... German artillery opened up.
3: Now, out at sea, we were far enough out where the Germans were not, uh, they didn't have the range for us. But once we got in their 88 shells, 88-millimeter 88 shells, which were devastating, uh, they came in, and they could shoot out to the uh, point where we were. As a matter of fact, one of their shells hit our ramp and killed several of the fellas on the starboard ramp. I went off the port ramp.
0: We were the first regimental command post to make the landing. I don't remember waiting ashore. I think I must have just skipped in to get my feet on the ground. Every one of us felt the same way. We didn't care what happened to us, as long as we could get off that
2: bouncing boat. The din of gunfire was deafening.
3: Now, the CBs were in there with the Army, and they were blowing the gaps in the... Uh, obstacles that were placed by the Germans, of which there were uh, rows and rows of them. The obstacles were anywhere from long telephone poles with mines uh, at the end of them. The poles sticking up in the air and landing crafts would come in and hit them. There were iron gates. That, uh, they call them Belgium gates uh, that they uh, strung side by side across the beach. All of these things, there were any number of ingenious things that the Germans had put there to inhibit our making a landing. We had 16 different cuttings that were supposed to have been made through the obstacles. And the area that I landed in was the widest one of all. Some, they were never uh, never done because the Seabees uh, uh, and the, uh, the underwater team, uh, they were blown up, they were hit by the Germans and some blew up totally. When we got onto the beach, uh, off the landing craft itself, and headed in toward the beach, the water was maybe uh, up to my waist. And as I got onto the dry beach, I could see ahead of me all this purple smoke, a sign that the demolition people who are blowing up these obstacles, they're going to set them off. And so hit the deck means get on the ground. And once the uh, the explosion occurred and the demolition, the, whatever the obstacles were, were blown away, I mean, the future ships could come ashore without being uh, impinged on these various types of uh, obstacles that the Germans had put out there. Fortunately for us and all of those ahead of us that came in at low tide, it was wonderful. Those who followed us... The landing crafts, uh, whether they be the Higgins landing crafts, they were in these small little things, which really was the main source of getting the men ashore. Once the bow of the landing craft hit the sand underneath, the ramp would go down and the fellows would run off. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, we were faced there, the speed of the tide was three knots in both directions, and it created what we call runnels. You had high points and low points. Well, the landing craft, when they hit the high point, the coxswain would drop the ramp, the guys would run off, be fine for a few steps up to his waist. Next thing, he's over his head. We lost an awful lot of men that way.
1: You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio American
0: Network. Veterans Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and service women of all generations. The center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, the American Veterans Center sponsors additional documentaries, speaker conferences, and two publications, World War II Chronicles, and Valor, the Veterans of Vietnam. The American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the Center's website at www.americanveteranscenter.org or call 202-777-7272. Heavy fighting is still raging. Three thousand six hundred thirty-nine wounded. Red light, green light, and out, out. Get Gentlemen, out. this is
1: the real thing. The brutal death march of Vittam. Germany calling,
0: Germany calling. <laughs> right in the purest pace. the last
1: Cheer for Harlem, all You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network.
2: Now back in England, a 50 mile long air train gets underway. Yank paratroopers receive last-minute instructions before taking off for the invasion coast 100 miles across the English Channel. These are the heroes who established first contact with the enemy. We're over the enemy coast
0: now, and the run-in has started. Out, out into the air over France. And we know that the dropping zone is obstructed. We're dropping in fact into fields covered with poles. But I hit my chute and lower my kit bag from my harness. And then the ground comes up to hit me, and I find myself in the middle of a cornfield. And overhead, hundreds of parachutes and containers are coming down. The whole sky now is a fantastic chimera of lights and black.
2: On the night of June 5th, 1944, three airborne divisions, two American and one British, commenced the first stage of the Normandy invasion. The airborne forces landed behind German lines shortly after midnight. Largely because of the inexperience of the pilots, the American forces were dropped in widely scattered groups. But by morning, this vanguard force had secured bridges, roads, and airfields needed for the forthcoming Allied landings. An almost surreal scene along the French coast greeted the dawn of June 6. In his book, The Second World War, military historian John Keegan wrote, The spectacle was perhaps more dramatic than any soldier, sailor, or airman had ever seen at the beginning of any battle. On the Normandy coast, the sea from east to west, and as far north as the seaward horizon, was filled with ships, literally by the thousands. The sky thundered with the passage of aircraft, and the coastline had begun to disappear in smoke and dust. Under these angry clouds, Allied infantry were debarking from their landing craft. Picking their way between the shore obstacles, diving to cover from enemy fire, and struggling to reach the shelter of the cliffs and dunes at the head of the beaches. It was Joseph Voggy's job as Navy beachmaster to make order out of this chaos and to bring thousands of men and tons of materiel safely to shore.
3: So, we're on the beach now. We had trained, trained, and trained. We knew exactly what to do, how to do it, where to go because one of the things I must say that I think the success of the operation itself in terms of what we were doing and many of the others was the fact that we had uh, lots of training and there's no substitute for that a lot of encouragement we talked about what we were going to do we saw pictures of uh, the various obstacles we were going to be encountering there were so many things that we did we had a actual prayer sessions that uh, we all have the the, uh, the good fortune to pull through. And all of these things, our, our men were ready for that. And they each knew his particular duty, whether he be in the hydrographic section, the boat section, the, the uh, communications section, or the medical. Each knew what his duties were. And we had tanks that were supposed to have landed on the beach to silence the German emplacements along the beach. Now, we had what they called DD tanks. DD tanks, the regular Sherman tanks. Everyone, I'm sure, knows what a tank looks like. Well, these DD tanks were uh, were a creation of the English. Uh, they had skirts on them. They like, They made, made a boat out of them. They put a propeller in the back of them, and they put these canvas sideboards on it. So if you went into a lake, it's nice and quiet. It would uh, just rock there, and the propeller would move you about. The unfortunate thing is that the water was so rough that the water came up over the height of these rubber things that were holding it up, and it caused them to sink. Years and years later, they uh, had frogmen go down below and get the uh, location of all of the tanks that were sunk, and they all were all heading in the same direction. And they theorized that it was because they were heading toward that church steeple, and that was the area that they were told to go. Now, had the tanks gotten ashore, well, the firepower would been great because many of the placements that the uh, Germans had had to be neutralized to a good extent by actual men going up there throwing hand grenades in there. We had some of the, uh, we didn't, the early bombing, the aircraft didn't help. Having said that, the weather condition was such, the overcast was such that the aircraft carriers, the bombers who were supposed to drop the bombs, and, you know, in two seconds you could be quite a few miles away, and they didn't want to take a chance in hitting the fellows on the beach. So when they dropped their bombs, they were inland quite a bit, and consequently the fear that many Navy people had was, As we were going ashore in the water, we'd hit one of these craters created by the bomb. Well, they weren't there because they didn't drop any there, you see.
2: Landing craft were dispatched to the shore in waves. Beachmaster Voggy's wave was number six. He pushed off at H hour, 6.30 a.m., and landed one hour and five minutes later. When he hit the beach, he found that all the soldiers who had preceded him were backed up against the dune line. They were not moving. The Atlantic Wall still held back the tide of invaders.
3: We were ganged up at the beach. The beach was pretty flat, all the way from the low water mark up to the high water mark, which was probably the length of two football fields, and uh, which was quite a distance. Now, at the beach, where the sand stopped, you picked up little pebbles like stones. Little round stones, two inches in diameter, an inch in diameter. They call them shingles. They re- referred to them as shingles. And they went up for about a, an incline of about ten feet, eight feet. And most of the GIs and all of the people were laying flat on there because the Germans couldn't get their guns down onto them there. Well, at one point, uh, this officer came by to me. Since uh, I was quite noticeable a beachmaster, I had a BM notice on my arm I had a uh, walkie-talkie I had a, a sidearm I carried a carbine and uh, I looked like someone that uh, had was giving orders so he said get these men tell these men to get the hell off the beach so with the power microphone I said I got orders here from your commanding officer to get off these beaches now well some of the army guys got their Bangalore torpedoes and they pushed it under the barbed wire because there was a barbed wire at the top of this incline, and there was a whole bunch of barbed wire across, and on it were signs which says Achtunen meinen. In German, that's poor German, but it means attention mines are here. Well, they put torpedoes under and blew gaps through the barbed wire. And then the guys got up, come on, the fellow said, follow me, and he started in. And the first thing you know, you heard some explosion. He stepped on the mine, and Quite a few fellows lost their lives and were injured just going through. But once they cleared it, that was the beginning of penetrating the Atlantic Wall. We then made progress, and the men not only uh, got through that, but they worked their way up the big bluff behind us, which went up quite some distance. Uh, we had one of the fellows who was not in my platoon, The fellow by the name of Bob Gaguerre, He lost track of where his his gang was, his troops were, and this uh, soldier said to him, "Come on, sailor, follow me." So he uh, he followed this fellow, and uh, he said, "We're going to go, we're going to go up and get this uh, gun emplacement." And by golly, Edgar Gear got some of these hand grenades, and he was able to throw them inside of this, and he blew up the uh, the, the the men inside these housing where the Germans were the pillbox. He was able to get his hand grenade up close to him. You you say that happens in the moving pictures. Well, it actually happened here.
2: Each of the invasion's waves had a certain responsibility. Each carried something with it to be used to neutralize German defenses. Ships and landing craft disgorged men and materials amid blistering fire raining down from enemy positions high above the beach.
3: During that whole period of time, It was my responsibility to control everything from out at sea up to the high water mark of the beach. Beyond that, it was the Army's responsibility. My job was to get all the material ashore, get it in, tell the boats where they were to go to unload. It was telling men who came ashore which way to go, where they wanted to go, where they needed to go. So it was a matter of being someone as the phrase implies, a traffic cop. I knew where they were supposed to go. You know, I was somebody they could turn to to find out where they were to go. Like Times Square in New York, if you saw a fellow who in the blue uniform and had a whistle and a billy stick, you could go to him, you felt comfortable going to him. Well, that was much the way I felt. That was my job. You must remember that men getting off these landing craft, these Higgins crafts, for instance, many of them never got ashore when they were landed far out. Many of them were not with the group that they came in, so they would go to anyone looking for, do you know where where my people were, Where where's my gang? Well, I wouldn't know where any of those people, they all look alike to me, and I had no reason to know who they were or where they were going. My responsibility was to get them ashore and then make sure they got off the shore, direct them which way to go to get off the shore. Now, the landing crafts would land with LCTs, would have all kinds of vehicles that they would drive uh, off, and uh, they could drive underwater because they were also waterproof. But once they got ashore, usually if you got the first one started in the right direction, the rest of them would follow. If was in trouble, I sent one of my men out. I saw this Army guy coming in with bicycle wheels on a gun. He was towing it, and he was having an awful time with it, and I sent him out to help him in with it. And the man I sent out, he got shot through the shoulder. Came back, he said, I helped him, but I got shot. So <laughs> you, you never know. It, 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 that was those times, you just did what the instinct told you to do and what your training told you. I can't say enough about training.
2: Beachmaster Voggy and his crew were in constant communication with command ships positioned off the coast. The radio frequencies they used, however, allowed the Germans to zero in with a very formidable weapon.
3: We were, I think at the time, the only communication between the shore and the ship, and we were sending messages like crazy. And I was told later that the we were hit by a big shell, and it was a railroad uh, come from a railroad gun somewhere inland that the Germans had, that they picked up our frequency because we were sending messages constantly out to the ships. When that shell hit us, my clothes, I couldn't hear, my clothes were on fire, and I could hardly walk. But uh, damage caused, uh, we had a lot of casualties in the area to begin with, but this created more casualties and the shell raised one of the jeeps into the air, came down and landed on one of my men, and killed him instantly.
0: This is Chester Wilmot, broadcasting from a glider, a bound for France and invasion. We've just passed over the coast of France, and all around us along the Cossack Act is going up, away to the right, the way off to the left. And there now I can see the, the light, which is to guide us in
2: to our main landing zone.
3: Now, once we took over the uh, Germans vacated the gun emplacements, we could go up and look and see what it was like inside. And inside, they had pictures painted on the bulkhead. They looked out on the beach. They could tell by the picture where you were. And they had uh, instructions on there what elevation to raise the gun and how to aim it. And they would hit us right on right on target. And they they would shoot up the beach and down the sh- beach. We were crossfire, and that's what made Omaha. They called it the Bloody Omaha, Well that's because at each end of this Omaha area, the Easy Red Beach, uh, they had these guns. The Germans were shooting like this, and we were walking into this uh, cement mixers. What it turned out to be, you see. The whole operation was successful because of the thing called courage.
2: The Gamble of D-Day was a monumental success. With the French coast taken, the invasion force pounded at the German forces dug in around the hedgerows of Normandy. Adverse weather bogged down the Allied armies in the fertile Norman countryside. But on June 27, 1944, U.S. troops captured Cherbourg and began their unstoppable roll across France, toward the liberation of all of Europe.
3: One of the things I'm asked a great deal about is, what do you think about Private Ryan? I thought it was um, very good. Uh, First of all, the first 20 minutes, the first half hour possibly, was accurate in the sense that what you saw was true. The sequence in which it's shown all bunched up at one time, that was not really the way it was except for certain individual cases. Uh, where you all you saw all of the massacre going on at one time in one location, and it appeared that it was happening all along the beach. Well, it did not happen all along the beach that way. there were areas along the beach where these things did happen. There were in certain individuals certain instances where the human body was just torn to shred, and it showed us Spielberg showed it very clearly. They also showed the uh, beach battalion people. They had that down correctly. But the story itself, once you got off the beach, it was almost any other story, except that uh, the most moving part for me was not what we saw on the beach. I mean, I sat there, and lots of things went through my mind. But where I really broke down was at the very end of the picture when uh, the fellow was standing in front of the uh, headstone and said, did I do okay? And that, to me, was, I think, what all of us felt. Did we do okay?
2: Posterity records that the men of the 6th Naval Beach Battalion did more than just okay. The unit's Presidential Unit citation reads... The extraordinary gallantry, heroism, and determination displayed in overcoming unusual difficulties and hazardous conditions, and the esprit de corps displayed by the 6th Naval Beach Battalion contributed materially to the capture of Omaha Beach and reflect highest credit on personnel of this organization and the armed forces of the United States. On the 29th of June, Joseph Boggy and his platoon left Normandy and went back to England. Now our weekly World War II chronicles and our salute to an American military hero. The
0: British, with startling suddenness, have carried out an attack of the kind that only a few days ago was regarded as a vague possibility of the distant future. The greatest air armada of all time concentrated its unprecedented power on the German industrial city of Cologne during the night and all but wiped it off the map. For the first time in the war,
2: more than 1,000 bombers took part in a single raid. For three hours, on the night of May 30th, 1942, the Royal Air Force dropped almost 1,500 tons of bombs on the city of Cologne. Known as Operation Millennium, this enormous effort was made possible only by scraping together every plane from operational squadrons and training units. Back in the United States, the Americans were celebrating Memorial Day. On this holiday, America's first Memorial Day since Pearl Harbor, the nation is honoring its heroic dead with many of the usual ceremonies of peacetime. But it's the most solemn observance since the days of World War Number 1. There have been parades and cheers, and as usual, hundreds of thousands have enjoyed the holiday in sports and outings. At the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington's National Amphitheater across the Potomac, Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells said that our victory in this war must bring the liberation of all peoples, for the age of imperialism is ended. Today, as our nation faces the gravest danger it has ever confronted since it gained its independence. The American people are once more meeting together in every state of the Union to commemorate the observance of Memorial Day.
0: In his speech, Sumner Wells said that this is, in very truth, a people's war, which will not be really won until the fundamental rights of the Earth's peoples are secured. The aggressors, he said, must be disarmed. And there must be a world police power and a new world organization to maintain just conditions of life.
2: The post war world that Wells envisioned in his Memorial Day address would be realized in the Charter of the United Nations. I'm Ed Hurley. Join me next time for World War II Chronicles. Welcome to Heroes of the Air. True stories of those who flew for America and earned the nation's supreme military award, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Heroes of the Air is brought to you by the Air Force Association, an independent non-profit aerospace organization which promotes public understanding of the role aerospace power plays in our national defense. By the middle of 1943, U.S. B-17s and B-24s of the 9th Air Force were flying daily missions from bases in North Africa in support of Allied ground forces fighting in Italy. But military planners had another objective in mind that they hoped would cripple the Nazi war effort. Over 1,200 miles away lay important German oil refineries, which if destroyed or severely damaged could seriously disrupt the enemy's fuel supplies and hinder its mobility. Ploesti, Romania, August 1st, 1943. 178 B-24 Liberator bombers were assigned the mission, which was to be conducted at treetop levels after the long flight to the target. The dangers were clear. The cost could not be imagined. Army Air Corps Lieutenant Colonel Addison E. Baker was leading his command, the 93rd Heavy Bombardment Group, on that fateful day. As he was approaching the target, his aircraft was hit by a large caliber anti-aircraft shell, seriously damaged and set on fire. Lieutenant Colonel Baker ignored the fact he was flying at that time over terrain suitable for safe landing. He refused to jeopardize the mission by breaking up the lead formation, and continued unswervingly to lead his group to the target where he dropped his bombs with devastating effect. Only then did he leave the formation. However, despite his valiant efforts to gain sufficient altitude for the crew to escape by parachute, his aircraft crashed in flames after his successful efforts to avoid other planes in the formation. By extraordinary flying skill and brilliant leadership, Lieutenant Colonel Baker rendered outstanding, distinguished and valorous service to the nation. For his conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action against the enemy above and beyond the call of duty. Army Air Corps Lieutenant Colonel Addison E. Baker was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Air Force Association is proud to bring you Heroes of the Air, dedicated to those who earned the nation's highest military award, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Their service and sacrifice reflect an ideal that puts others and country above self. AFA salutes all men and women in the Air Force who so selflessly serve our country each day at home and around the globe. Heroes of the Air is produced by Pelcom Communications in association with Radio America. That's it for this edition of Veterans Chronicles. Please come again
1: next week. I'm Gene Pell saying so long for now. Veterans Chronicles, produced in Washington, D.C. by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. To learn more about this program or the American Veterans Center, call 202-777-7272 or log on to AmericanVeteransCenter.org.
4: MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Jumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun